0: Uh, what a wonderful nap, <laughs> if you got one. <laughs> and uh, good to see you tonight. It's been a special. I've really enjoyed the time with your pastor and his dear wife and uh, David. And uh, just a really precious time today. I thank the Lord for it. It's been a privilege to be here. It really has been. and uh, Just a wonderful song service tonight. You guys looking around and I could just see people just singing away. Bless the Lord. Uh, that's uh, that's a wonderful thing. Well, tonight, let's look at Psalm 68. This is an amazing A psalm, amazing text of scripture. In fact, many commentators have uh, said that Psalm 68 is very difficult to interpret. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon uh, chimed in that this is a very difficult psalm. Uh, The commentator called Adam Clark said, I know not how to undertake a comment on this psalm. It is the most difficult in the whole Psalter. (laughs) But thankfully... We're only going to look at the first three verses, (laughs) and they are amazing verses, certainly pertinent to the need of the hour in which we find ourselves on planet Earth in 2023. The inspired word says, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. A lot of contrast there. Title Is from those first three words. Let God arise. Let's pray. Lord, we need you tonight to open the eyes of our understanding to this amazing text of scripture. And Lord, as our world seems to be spinning out of control and being turned upside down in a very bad way, where evil is called good and good is called evil. Lord, show us the power of what you can do, even on a stage like this. And so, Lord, I plead the blood, protect us from the attack of the enemy tonight, who certainly hates what we're about to look at. And so, Lord Jesus, I claim our position in you on the throne far above the enemy. And in your name, I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder tonight. And trust you that that not be allowed. Lord, would you nurture faith in our hearts? Would you open our eyes to who you are? Lord, give us a God-sized vision tonight so that there can be God-sized faith, so that there can be a God-sized demonstration of who you are in our generation. Now, Lord, move us from wishful thinking to a convinced confidence. And Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 30% of the 8 billion people on planet Earth right now have never once heard the name of Jesus. That's 2.4 billion have never heard the name Jesus. Let God arise. In the USA, more churches are closing than are opening. Let God arise. Every conceivable attack is being waged on God's plan of one man and one woman in marriage. Let God arise. Actual history is being replaced with propaganda in our educational institutions. Let God arise. 29% of all U.S. adults have no religious affiliation. Let God arise. And over 60 million babies have been killed through what they call abortion, which is actually cold-blooded murder. Let God arise. What does that mean? And does God still do this? And if He does, what is our responsibility? So tonight let's look to the Word and the Spirit for the answers to those three questions. Let's first of all deal with that first question: what is the meaning of let God arise? Now you notice. In your text of Scripture, there's an inscription of the psalm. This was not added by somebody later. That's a part of the actual Bible. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, that's the first half of verse 1. And so it tells us, to the chief musician, a psalm or song of David. That's significant because it lets us know the time period. Obviously, uh, King David and God used uh, David to bring in the golden age uh, of Israel, and then followed by his son Solomon. And, you know, when David would have said these words... Let God arise. The Jews at that time would have understood that it was a quotation of Moses. Just as if a politician were to stand in our day and say fourscore and seven years ago, uh, we would immediately recognize Abraham Lincoln's words. Okay, when uh, David says here, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered and so on, they would have recognized this is a quotation from Moses in the book of Numbers chapter 10. And it was when Israel was in the wilderness and God led his people through a visible cloud, a a pillar of cloud by day. Can you imagine? And a pillar of fire by night. And when that pillar of God's presence, whether the cloud or the fire, would move, that's when the priests would pick up the Ark of the Covenant and they uh, would step forward. And that's when Moses would say, Numbers 10, 35, rise up, Lord. And let thine enemies be scattered. And let them that hate thee flee before thee. See, that's the quotation. Now, notice whose enemies. God's enemies. Which may differ from ours. (laughs) Let your enemies, O Lord, be scattered. Which means there is a spiritual warfare nuance. In this text, in fact, earlier preachers from earlier centuries recognized this. In the fourth century, there was a man by the name of Athanasius. He was used of God to defend the doctrine of the Trinity at one of the great church councils. But he was uh, uh, speaking of this psalm when he said, "Evil spirits may be put to flight by the psalm." Another guy named Antony in the same century said, uh, and I quote, they said about him that he fought against the devil with this verse and worsted him. (laughs) Don't you like that word worsted? That's kind of cool. But worsted him. Well, they understood something. And as the text goes on, we have this analogy as smoke is driven away. Just like a breeze of wind just drives the smoke away. So, drive them away, God's enemies. See, it's the unseen realm. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. Key phrase. Then, in contrast, verse 3 But let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. I'm not sure if we know how to do that in some Baptist churches. (laughs) I think you might get a handle on it here. (laughs) Uh, But let them exceedingly rejoice. In other words, God wins. And the righteous get excited and rejoice in God. Now, the key thought is the combination of the first three words of verse 1 and the last phrase of verse 2, which defines those first three words. Let God arise. What does it mean? At the presence of God. Now this Is fascinating because the word translated presence in some passages is translated face. Sometimes it's translated presence. And we have some comparative passages that affirm what we're concluding here. For example, in the pre-captivity days when Israel was on the decline and God was sending his prophets to warn them to repent or there would be judgment, we read a prayer in Isaiah And it begins in chapter 63 where the prophet Isaiah says, Look down from heaven and see. And he goes on in his prayer. And then uh, there is a crescendo as you come into Isaiah 64 and verse 1. And he cries out, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Let God arise at thy presence. Let God rend the heavens and come down at thy presence. Same concept, different imageries. And there again we have the spiritual warfare nuances. God tears through the heavens. We know from Ephesians chapter 6 that in the the enemies of God, there are the powers of the air that cause interference in services like this. And uh, cause people not to hear when they're they're even there and they're 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 missing out and so on. And the heart cry here is for God to tear through, banish the powers of darkness, and step down from heaven and manifest his presence. We find in the captivity itself, Daniel chapter nine, what a prayer, what an intercession. In verse 17, Daniel cries out to God, Cause your face, there's our word, your presence to shine. There it is again. The manifestation of the presence of God. And then you come to Ezekiel 39. Twenty-nine. After those great chapters of chapter 35, there shall be showers of blessing. Chapter 36 to 39, the war of Gog and Magog. And God steps in and wins that war for his people that the nations might know that he is the Lord and that his own people Israel would know that he is the Lord. And we read in Ezekiel 39, 29, God says, neither will I hide my face. There's our word. Neither will I hide my presence anymore from them, for I will have poured out of my spirit. And therefore, that phrase, God pouring out a spirit, is defined by God no longer hiding his presence. That is, God manifesting his presence. So we have four imageries here God rising up, God coming down, God's face shining, and God pouring out a spirit, all defined as the manifest presence of God. Now, We need to understand that there is a difference between God's omnipresence and His manifest presence. God is everywhere present. He's God. But right now, there are thousands of people in the greater Philadelphia area that are not aware of the presence of God at all. God is not in their thoughts. But do you know if God were to Rise up. If God were to come down, if God were to pour out his spirit on this vicinity of the greater metro area, this whole part of Pennsylvania, everyone in this vicinity, saved or lost, would be arrested with an awareness of the presence of God. My friends, I'm going to tell you, we need this. This awareness of the presence of God. It's not a physical manifestation. It's spiritual, but it's just as real as if it were physical. So what we talked about on the individual level where God's uh, 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 Jesus in us shines this morning, here's a much greater uh, uh, dynamic that can happen when God manifests his presence in the atmosphere. See, when when you as an individual are filled with the life of Jesus, that's the spirit-filled life. But when God fills the atmosphere with his life, that's this concept and that corporate dynamic. Now, there can be different levels of intensity. What I have just described is not weird. If you've been in church for any length of time at all, even right here, have you not had services? where there's just a holy hush that comes over this auditorium and everyone is riveted and you can hear a pin drop because everybody knows God's speaking to us. Okay, that's the same dynamic. Now, it can get more intense. Sometimes so much so that people break out sobbing and cannot stop it. I've seen that happen once where I had to actually stop a service because we couldn't go on. Somebody was so moved uh, by the Lord. Uh, In the history books you read of sometimes people cannot contain themselves as as they are so aware of God, they cry out for mercy, forgetting they're in a public setting. It can get more intense, but it's the same dynamic. There can also be different levels uh, of what we might call geographical breadth. God can do this in a dorm room. He has. A few years ago, on one of our campuses, a couple of boys got together to study the Bible. Some were business majors. I think there was one preacher boy in the midst. And uh, they were reading through Ephesians. And they would, you know, this guy would read a few verses, this guy would read a few verses, and the next guy. And God came. And they met with God for hours. They have never been the same. They are on fire. That was two years ago. It's amazing what happens when you come face to face with God. In fact, one of the boys called his uh, pastor, a good friend of mine, Jim Bickel, and said, Pastor, he said, I felt like I was drunk in the spirit. (laughs) Now, he's at a Christian college. (laughs) Uh, uh, But my point is, it can happen in a dorm room. It can happen in a living room. It can happen in an auditorium just like this. It can happen like in a gymnasium like it did uh, two years ago at Camp Kobiak. My son was there. In fact, uh, he told me later, he'd already been to camp once in the early uh, summer and then They went again, and uh, so this was his last chance to go to teen camp before college, so he went to a second one that summer, and uh, he told me, he said, I I walked into that week and said, God, you got to do something. This can't just be another week of camp. I, I, I need you to speak. And on Wednesday night, and I'm sure others were praying, on Wednesday night, the preacher was preaching on purity, and God came so powerfully that the teenagers from my home church, Ann Arbor Baptist Church, said to the youth leader at the end of the week, God was in the room. Now, our teenagers don't talk that way, which means God was in that room. And they knew it. My son called me on that Friday, and I was out in another camp in Arizona. He said, Dad, he said, I, I don't know. He said, but I, I think I'm in a revival. He started describing what was going on. I said, John, you are. It can happen in a town. Like it did in DeBarton, West Virginia in March of 2016. And that presence of God affected a whole county, and it spilled over into the second county, and by May, of that year because of this moving of God. It's an amazing story, starting with a teenager in a public school uh, and so on, but God on the move. 3,000 teen teenagers were saved in that uh, three-month period. And in fact, I saw a, an article from the newspaper in DeBarton, West Virginia, uh, this little town uh, on the Kentucky border where this pastor was saying, if you walk into the average restaurant in DeBarton, the, the average conversation you're going to overhear is about God because God had stepped down from heaven. God had arisen. There was an awareness. So, there can be different levels of intensity, there can be different levels of geographical breadth, and there can be different levels of duration as I mentioned this morning, there in that uh, revival in South Africa. And uh, they would go, these services would roll till three o'clock in the morning. And, and this happened night after night after night. Uh, you can have it like that. Sometimes it's sometimes it's a given service. Like a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine called me, uh, East Atlanta area just a few months ago. And he said, John, he said that we're having our service and uh, we had our invitation and we're about to close on a Sunday morning service. And a young man who had kind of been away for a while, but had come back and then he raised his hand. He said, Pastor, He said, I'm a porn addict, and I can't get free. Would you anoint me with oil, according to James 5, and pray? I've got to get deliverance. I'm going to tell you something. They did. And then this one said, I have this need. And then this one said, I have this Men, ladies, that thing went until like 2.30 in the afternoon, and it happened the next week. And then it happened the next week. Got on the move. So sometimes it's a service like that. Sometimes it can go for days. Sometimes it can go for weeks. The point is, it's the manifest presence of God. Mm -hmm. Now, when God does this, there's an awareness that He is God, (laughs) that He is holy. My wife and I went to visit the island of Lewis, where the Lewis awakening took place. Duncan Campbell came to that island in December of 1949, and God stepped down from heaven, as the Scottish said, and he preached uh, from village to village for the next three years. It was going to be a 10-day meeting. He stayed there three years, got on the move. But uh, we went to research that revival, and God allowed us to meet four people converted in the revival in July of uh, the year 2000. One was a man by the name of Donald Smith. He'd gotten converted in the revival in uh, 1952. And the revival began in a village called uh, Barvis, in an auditorium about this size. And uh, we were one village over. In fact, it's very closely uh, connected there named Shiner. That's where he lived. We were in his little uh, uh, house, and, and uh, he served us tea and uh, biscuits. For us, we would call that tea and cookies. But at any rate, uh, we're there, and we're talking about the revival. And he said, you know, when Duncan Campbell would preach over at the village church there in Barberus, they would announce an after-meeting. You say, what in the world is an after-meeting? It's a meeting after the meeting. <laughs> And uh, uh, they would say, we're going to meet at such and such a house. And he said, right over here in the village of Shinar, one night, he said, they announced this meeting, and we all came. And he, he, he said, it was packed. You know, people were everywhere. He said, two girls were on a step over here. I mean, everybody was sitting wherever they could. And he said, Duncan Campbell got up to preach, and he said, uh, you know, it was late, and, uh, and it was a little heavy for a, a moment or two there. And he said, the girls had fallen asleep over here. Well, I don't blame them. It's late at night. He said, then, in a moment, the atmosphere changed the presence of God was felt. He said those two girls jarred out of their sleep, face to face with the reality that God is in the room, and burst into tears. Now, friends, when you see God for who he is, you see sin for what it is. This is why in the accounts of, of the great awakenings and the great revivals, these greater outpourings, when God fills the atmosphere with his life, that sometimes people cry out for mercy. And others who are already right with God cry out for joy. Same revival, like in the Congo in the 1950s. Powerful moving of God. Some crying out for mercy, some crying out for joy. But the whole point is, there's an awareness of God. And friends, I think American Christianity needs to come face to face with God. We need to be reminded of who he is and what real holiness, not fake holiness, real holiness is all about. And that face to face awareness of God. Ah, yes, that brings us to our knees if there's sin. But when there's honesty, then the blood comes rushing in and there's a cleansing in people. And some are saying, I'm clean. And others that are lost get saved and say, I'm saved. And it's all happening at the same time. God on the move. So, what does let God arise mean? It's the manifestation of the presence of God. Powerful, spiritual manifestation. Sometimes coming in like a tsunami. Those are the ones that get written about because they happen to be a little bit more dramatic. And other times, like the tide rising. And not as dramatic, but in the end, the water gets over the rocks and there's just an atmosphere where you don't want to miss church because God's there and things are happening. That brings us to the second question. Does God still do this? Does God still manifest His presence in the New Testament era? As I mentioned, in the Old Testament, they were physical manifestations like the cloud and the fire. But in the New Testament, it's not not a physical manifestation, it's spiritual. We live in the age of the Spirit. But it's just as real as if it were physical. Does it still happen? Well, it happened in Acts 2. Happened again in Acts 4. Happened again in Acts 8. Happened again in Acts 9. Happened again in Acts 10. <laughs> happened again in Acts 13. In a 50-year period of time, there were these seasons of refreshing. Now, the filling of the Spirit is supposed to be continual. Keep on allowing yourself to be full of Spirit. But the outpouring of the Spirit is seasonal. Times, seasons of refreshing. For those of you that know agriculture, you can't have rain all the time. You've got to have rain. And, you know, and, and the seed time, and you need the rain time. But there's times when you need to stop raining so you can bring in the harvest. Okay, seasons are refreshing. But they should be seasonal. Well, what about New Testament history? In other words, church history. We don't have time right now. There's a t- occasionally I teach a module course on the major revivals of church history, and it shocks people to find out that God moved in the first century, God moved in the second century, God moved in the third, Every century. The weakest movements were in what we call the Dark Ages, but there were still some movements. But every other century has had powerful movements of God, sometimes several of them in the same century, and they discover that this is what God does. But for the sake of time, let me jump to the 18th century to North America. And God had moved over in Europe in what we call the Moravian Revival, 1727, and to put things in context, in the 1600s, uh, there was a lot of preachers that were imprisoned. And uh, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, all that happened, you know, in prison. You had a lot of prayer going up. But now you had the pilgrims coming to the, uh, the, uh, to the colonies, as they were called in those ti- at that time. And there were some that were seeking God. And so the first Great Awakening that we refer to historically... The peak of it was the 1740s, but in the 1730s it began to roll. And over uh, there in uh, uh, Massachusetts, in Northampton, there was a guy named Jonathan Edwards who uh, uh, saw that God was moving in his town. And what I told you about DeBarton and that. Uh, article in the paper from 2016 where you read Jonathan Edwards, A Surprising Work of God, 1735. He said, you walk in the streets of Northampton Northampton, and the average conversation you overhear is about God. And that crescendoed and God sent a big voice. His name was George Whitfield. This guy's voice was so big. He couldn't whisper, (laughs) and uh, this guy could preach, and thousands could hear. In fact, Benjamin Franklin estimated at one point there were 30,000 people in the audience, and they could all hear him without one of these. And uh, But God was on the move. People were being born again. They would announce the next, uh, uh, the next time that he would preach at such and such a town. And they said you could look over the horizon and you could see a cloud of dust on every road that was heading into that town as people on foot and on horseback and on and carriage coming to hear the next uh, message. <laughs> God on the move. Thousands were born again. Uh, the peak was 1740, 1741. And the aftermath affected the next number of decades. Then we had the American Revolution, which was not a rebellion. It was British citizens standing up for British rights that were being violated by the British Crown, contrary to the rewrite of history today. But we became a nation. And now, 4,000 people a day This was big numbers, especially at that time period. 4,000 people a day were pouring into this new United States of America through Ellis Island. 4,000 a day who knew not the power of the first Great Awakening. And very quickly, debauchery was everywhere. In fact, the statistics on immorality and drunkenness in the 1780s would be like reading the paper today. We need to know that. The anti-God rhetoric from France, from the pen of Voltaire, was being printed and disseminated all over these new United States. And even some of our own, like Thomas Paine, were joining in. And he was predicting that Bibles were going to soon die out. And that within a few years, you could only find them in the musty corners of secondhand bookstores and museums. (laughs) He was wrong. But this is what was going on. It was wicked, and it was anti-God. And it wasn't 2023. It was 1780s. That was the stage. We need to know that. Then a guy named Isaac Bacchus, a Baptist preacher. Oh, this is neat. We finally get a Baptist in the history here. Uh, uh, he uh, was up in Maine, and he and a couple other guys were stirred because they'd heard about a union of prayer that was taking place in, in, in England that, was, that the, God was on the move. And they had gotten stirred because something Jonathan Edwards wrote, uh, wrote on prayer, and now they're praying. And so they said, we need to do the same, and they wrote a letter. Challenging the churches of New England uh, to to set aside one day a quarter. That's all. Four days a year. Stop everything and cry out to God for a mighty effusion of the Spirit. That's their word for outpouring. That's what we're talking about. And they circulated this letter in 1795. It is known historically as the circular letter for that reason. You know what? The churches of New England heeded it. They stopped everything on those days. They began to cry out to God. God, we need you to move. We're sinking quickly as a new nation. Anti-God and all the sin. Lord, we need you. They cried out. They didn't just, no, no, deal. No, they cried out. We got to have God. In fact, those prayer meetings were so powerful, they stepped it up from once a quarter to once a month. And God began to breathe. And by 1798, just three years, New England is in what was in what we call a general revival. In other words, it was ablaze. And just like the fall colors are ablaze, it was the ablaze of God's fire in revival. And then, as you move into the early 1800s, the fire spread through the middle colonies. New York, <laughs> New Jersey, Philadelphia. And <laughs> oh, man. And... Uh, Yes, God on the move in the middle colonies. And then as the 1800s continued into the teens and so on, it began to move into the uh, eastern seaboard states. And as, you, uh, as the country was moving west, it hit the western states, which in those days was Kentucky and Tennessee, the great camp meeting revivals, Cane Ridge these great uh, uh, congregations that would gather and they would have four preachers on on each corner of the crowd preaching simultaneously so that everybody could hear and Peter Cartwright and Lorenzo Dow and Robert Sheffield being used of God. There was a surge of revival in the 1820s, another surge in the 1830s. This revival went from 1798 uh, to 1842, spreading across our country. It is what made us more than any other factor a Christian nation. It's powerful. And then we got prosperous. people forgot God and when you forget God you can sink quickly and that's exactly what was happening in the rest of the 1840s and 1850s and uh, there was a prayer meeting that was called in New York. I'll come back to that in a moment. That's what most people talk about when we talk about the Third Great Awakening. So the First Great Awakening was 1740s. Second Great Awakening was early 1800s. But the origins of prayer were before Fulton Street, as we'll mention in a moment, in Manhattan. According to J. Edwin Orr, who wrote the song Search Me, O God, that's in our hymnals. Uh, The British historian evangelist He said the origins of the Third Great Awakening in prayer, intercession, were among the slaves in the plantations in the southern states. Oh, God. We need you to break through. There was another origin of prayer in Hamilton, Canada. And then... As we come to 1857, there was a preacher by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere, a Dutch Reform guy in Manhattan. And he had gotten stirred probably in answer to the prayers of these other uh, origins of prayer. And so uh, he uh, he he wrote up a slip of paper, got it printed off, that on such and such a day, this is the fall of uh, 1857, he said, uh, we're going to meet for prayer Uh, on such and such address on whatever floor in some building there in Manhattan, Fulton Street. And he said, we'll start at noon. We will finish promptly at 1 so you can go back to work. He plastered these all over Manhattan. That first day, he shows up, and for 30 minutes, it's him and God. (laughs) Then he hears somebody come up the stairs. By the time they dismissed at 1, there were 6 The next week, the next prayer meeting was one week later, there were 20. The next week, there were 40. And then October the 14th, 1857, the stock market crashed. Banks failed. People panicked. And within a couple of weeks, they were drawing 3,000. Now having to have prayer meetings all over. And, And then they stepped it up from once a week to every day. And all over Manhattan, you had people running to the prayer meetings from noon to 1 o'clock. And it began to spread to the other boroughs. In fact, it was so powerful, the presence of God in New York City, that one of our military ships was coming into harbor. And uh, the sailors had no idea that something was going on, that God was on the move in New York. And as they got within a certain distance of that harbor, they became aware of the presence of God. They sailed right into it and got under deep conviction and began to call on God and many of them were born again then boston began to pray and philadelphia began to pray god on the move atlanta georgia it wasn't just the big cities